What has been sort of the most surprising and delightful thing is the kinds of innovative and exciting audio that first-time podcast producers create. It, it, is, it never ceases to be a pleasure to me to work with students on audio. I'm, I'm teaching a podcasting course right now, and we're just getting to the point where in week four, and we're just getting to the point where they're like giving us audio. And I'm, I, was tr- I was talking with a friend the other day. I was like, why is it so much better than essays? I don't understand. Like, I love reading. Amazing. Yeah. Why is it so much more fun to engage with student audio work? And I think it is because it, it's a new and different medium. And so it's like, it's a different part of your brain. It shakes you out of a lot of your sort of default thinking around like what schoolwork needs to be like and what you're allowed to do. It lets you be more artistic. It, it lets you feel like you're making something yeah. rather than just sort of like, you know, checking off the boxes on an assignment. And so there's the space for for play and experimentation and unpredictability um, that emerges through the way that people who are who are brand new to the medium, you know, start to experiment with it. That is just so joyful and interesting and exciting. Well, welcome to the Radio Survivor podcast. We're going to start today with our, our conversation with, you know, here's my... Hannah McGregor. <laughs> it's strong. Go. I was going to interrupt you and say, Dr. Hannah McGregor, how Doctor. dare you? Thank you. Which I have no attachment no. to my title except when I can use it to troll people. Dr. Hannah McGregor, I was actually just talking about that with with some of my friends, one of whom is an academic, and and the use of doctor and how she feels about that. And if it's an issue, if somebody automatically calls her by her first name, or if that first meeting, you should say doctor. Well, this goes in the podcast. You know, we we just experienced this on a national stage because uh, Dr. Jill Biden's doctor was called into question in a way that was... You know, straw man and flimsy. It, oh, it it, I mean, it was such a horrible Wall Street Journal piece attacking her for using "doctor" in her title. It was it was the most misogynistic, yeah. meanwhile, horrible piece of writing. If you've, if and then and then I look and then like we find out what her career has been because of that, and it was like adult education is an extremely amazing and important leveling of <laughs> of you know, it's just the most beautiful and deep. Like, if anyone gets to call themselves a doctor, why not Dr. Jill Biden for, like, you know, well, it's just, like, women, you know, adult women who have been moms and, and working, you know, just, like, just her, I, I can't remember what paper it was that I read because of this controversy, but it was, like, it was just about the incredible classroom of community college and what it's like to be around so many diverse people who are all there to be, or devoted to learning. It was a wild op-ed on a lot of levels. It had some pretty transparent misogyny at work. And then you drilled down and the next level was like people who aren't physicians shouldn't be allowed to call themselves doctors, which is a like really historical revisionist like doctorates where the first doctors and physicians came later and started using the term. So like that's some historical nonsense. Um because physicians didn't used to be respected figures, right? They were like, surgeons were like barbers. Like it was a gross thing you did with your hands rather than hmm. hang out in a cool robe in an old institution thinking thoughts about books, um, which is what real doctors do. <laughs> Think thoughts about books. Huh. Um, 
And then you drilled even further down and the op-ed was like, and also look at this unpromising research she does about community education. And I was like, sorry, so is your problem just that you hate women or that you hate educated people or that you hate the idea of community education it's all of the above yeah like working class bad people, take. working class people getting an education in their middle age just it just makes yeah. me boil i and i so appreciate that historical perspective that you just provided on that dr mcgregor and and back to back to titles <laughs> i'm curious you know in our podcast we have a lot of academics on and i, I started thinking about this we don't always use the word doctor when we're introducing them. Yeah. And should we? Well, I mean, what's your take? I'm curious. I use it to make that. fun of Christopher on the sly. Yeah. So the reason I think why we why we need to have this conversation is that the people who default tend to get doctor are white men. Um, and that we tend to uh, strip credentials uh, from women and people of color. And that that is, if you are using it uneven, unevenly, it might be worth going back and being like, who did I feel really comfortable moving to a first name basis with? And who did I feel like instinctively I should call doctor from the get go? Hmm. And are there patterns there? Because hmm. that's the kind of thing that we don't even notice a lot of the time. But it's like, well, obviously, you're a doctor, you're very old and have a beard. I think I think that's I think that's important. And I mean, as I think about the radio survivor show, I want to make sure that we're doing a better job at representation and in the way that we talk about things and describe our guests. And I, I think you're sort of hinting at um, a place where we could improve. So yeah, I think maybe I'll try to say doctor from now on for everybody who has a PhD, which is a lot of our guests, which is cool. Yeah. Or, or don't say doctor for anybody who has a PhD because that credential is not relevant to what you're doing here because we're not in a university right now. Like I, I think you could make a justification for either because like it is a specific professional credential that has relevance in some contexts and not in others. And I think it would be kind of like a, a weird move if I made people outside of my workplace call me doctor. Yeah, Hannah, what like, do you what do you call do you doctor anybody on your on your podcast? No. No, first names always. Always. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe, yeah, maybe we need to start stripping credentials from the people who we've called doctor in the past. Yeah. We could do that. Or only use it uh, to make fun of people. <laughs> yeah, I use it. I think maybe the only podcast I've ever actually insisted somebody call me doctor is on a Harry Potter podcast <laughs> called Potterless. Well, that's, I'm um, so glad you brought that up because that's what it's like when you were mentioning the, 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 the doctors of old, I was picturing wizards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's 100% where wizards come from. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I like to sometimes troll people by uh, by making them call me doctor. But it's only ever as a troll like my students sure don't. That would be so weird. That's delightful. In grad school, I remember my professors bantering around calling each other doctor. But when I was an undergrad, I remember my professors, like we were all like for all, even as undergrads, we called our professors by their first names. So it's funny in grad school, there was some of that, but it was in like a, the way they called each other doctor was in a very friendly, convivial sort of way. Yeah. 
Yeah. And like when I have a friend who has just recently gotten their PhD, I call them doctor every opportunity that I have because like they just accomplished a big thing and that's really cool. Yeah. No, it's right. an accomplishment. To get them to get them ready to accept their new status <laughs> on the planet. Yeah. All right, Eric Klein, would you like me to start the show? Yes, please. Thank you. I'll, <laughs> and I'll hit – and so I hit my uh, stopwatch. I'm going to do that too. Yeah, when it hits 59 – when it hits 57 or, you know, I you know, try to ask the, 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 the bird's eye view, how do you feel about this entire project we've been talking about question at 52, you know? Okay. That's the idea. Cool. I'll brainstorm cool. some oh, yeah. answers yeah. to that. Super, super secret <laughs> back. Well, I mean – but what's wonderful about a radio show – is that and a podcast is like when you get to that point, you you have been talking for fifty two minutes straight about that topic, and your mind is ready for such a question, it, it, like like never before. You've been you've been meditating on that answer the whole time. Hopefully, if you're you know if we did our jobs, if we all did all our right. jobs. Okay, I'm totally great. ready to just be in the podcast right now. I have another thing to talk about, but. Save it for the conclusion. Are right? we going to have like a podcast at the end of the radio show yeah. or not? We'll be done. No, okay. yeah. yeah. When we get yeah, there. It's a podcast sandwich. Exactly. It's yeah, because I want to tell you about, I want to tell Hannah about my new pop, pop culture right. podcast. Oh, that's going to be delightful. <laughs> yes. Good teaser. Okay. All right. I'm going to start my stopwatch. Okay. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. And we'd like to welcome back to the show Hannah McGregor, Assistant Professor of Publishing at Simon Fraser University. On episode 275, she joined us for a discussion about academic podcasting and peer-reviewed podcasts. And today, she's here to talk about Spoken Web, a Canadian project focused on the preservation of literary sound recordings. Hannah leads the Spoken Web's podcast task force and also hosts the Spoken Web podcast. Thanks for joining us, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me back. So, as I mentioned, Spoken Web is a project to preserve literary sound recordings. What exactly is a literary sound recording? <laughs> An excellent question. You know, the origin of Spoken Web as a project comes out of interest in digitizing and preserving the recordings of literary readings in Canada. So it's particularly attending to the event. Um, Canadian literary history really was marked by this amazing surge of creative energy and activity in the 60s and 70s. And there's like a whole history there that we can get into if you're interested in how the Cold War influenced Canadian nationalism. But essentially, in the 60s and 70s, we've got this new generation of writers and lots of poets. And this kind of wild moment where like, poets became rock stars in Canada and would go to these like incredibly like packed events and do these amazing high energy readings. And a lot of these events were being recorded and they were being recorded, you know, on eight track and then later on on cassette and people would record them and then make copies for their friends and pass them around and you know bootleg copies of like this cool poetry reading I went to and for the most part these like weird audio archives like haven't been necessarily preserved in university archives you know a lot of the time they're in like somebody's trunk 
or a closet somewhere. They're part of people's personal holdings. So what Spoken Web is doing is finding these weird, interesting audio collections and, uh, and starting to digitize them so that more people can hear them and so that we can study them. And what, what's sort of the backstory of that? How did somebody have the idea of, because I can see how these might be sort of viewed as ephemera. And I know people that have these interesting recordings, you know, from the past in their collections. So what was, what was the moment that sort of led to the idea that, wow, this really needs to be housed somewhere and really tended to as a collection? I mean, it's part of a larger project of sort of digitizing and paying attention to forms of culture that we might have thought of as ephemeral, but that record important histories that might get lost otherwise. And it's definitely explicitly a project that's made possible by the kinds of digital technology we have now, right? That we can sort of do this work at our various institutions and then centralize things, um, that the infrastructure exists to do this now. But but in the sense of, you know, whose idea was this? Um, Spoken Web is a project that was created by Jason Camlot, who is a sound studies professor at Concordia University. And it really emerged out of him doing work on a very particular um, reading series that happened in Montreal during the 60s and 70s. And um, that was sort of the the inspiration, starting with that collection, which has all been digitized now and which you can find entirely on the Spoken Web website. Um, but uh, that was sort of the starting point, work on that collection. And then out of that came this realization that, like, actually there are there are lots of other examples, lots of other interesting collections that we might want to digitize. So so the most thoroughly digitized collection so far is the Sir George Williams Poetry Series, um, which is like 1965 to 1975. That's all online and you can go and listen and it's got like great old, just like tons of tons of names you'll recognize if you're really into 1960s and 1970s Canadian poets, <laughs> but also like you know, there's Allen Ginsberg on there. Like, you know, there's, there's people who also you might have heard of. Um, I say that just because I don't know how much of a household name Earl Bernie is, but trust me, he's important. Um, so that's all been digitized and is great. You can go and check it out. But other people have other similar can, interesting collections. So I want to ask to add to them. I want to ask a very silly question. Why is he important? What, you know, because um, just to be brutal and honest like in my mind for many of my the years of my life the idea of poetry was a very um i don't know where i got this idea it's probably from television but that that people wrote poems about very abstract and you know uh i'm just assuming like a frivolous nature and so i'm wondering what that particular poet that you just referenced what was the nature of their work it's like so it's the question why is earl bernie important or why is poetry important? yeah why well why 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 is earl so cool earl bernie yeah earl bernie um i mean he won the governor general's award twice um i mean what we're looking at is is to go back briefly to that sense of like a historical moment and why poetry played such a big role in that moment so up until world war ii canada is still functionally a colony right it's part of the commonwealth it lacks a lot of um, political and cultural independence from the uk and world war ii is when 
the British Empire broke up, right? Mm -hmm. And so post-World War II, Canada, one, is like, ah, dang, we're independent now. How do we start to articulate what we are as a nation? But almost more significantly, you know what world power was rising in the wake of World War II? The United States of America. Yeah, it was... was (laughs) That one. <laughs> and uh, and here we are right next to this emerging world power in the midst of the Cold War. And you have bombs and we don't. Mm. And there was genuine fear that Canada was going to be annexed by the United States. And so there's this report written in the 1950s um, that... Basically, the the governor general of the time is called the Massey Report. And the governor general of the time, um, which is the Queen's representative in Canada. This is Canada's weird. um, uh, Basically said, the best way for us to protect ourselves politically Mm -hmm. and sort of in a military sense is to create a unique and distinct culture so that we are culturally distinct from the US. And so all of these new forms of infrastructure started to emerge that were dedicated to like fostering and promoting Canadian culture. And one of the main forms that that like distinct articulation of a local cultural identity was worked out was in poetry. Like, I think there really was, because it goes hand in hand with this moment where really experimental, right? It's the beat generation. It's postmodernism. People are really experimenting with what constitutes a poetic voice. What can poetry be? What can it sound like? And young writers in Canada are using that form to really work out, like, who are we? What kind of literature are we creating? What kind of communities are we imagining? So poetry becomes this incredibly potent site for like working through really complex, like political and cultural questions. I love that. And I mean, it makes me think about even things today in Canada, where I feel like there's more of an appreciation for experimental radio work. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like, um, yeah, experimental audio, experimental sound over the radio and artists that practice that. I feel like there's funding there for projects like that in a much bigger way than in the United States. And and I'm curious, as you're talking about this, this poetry emergence, if you know of connections with radio at the time, too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Tons of connections to radio at the time. And and folks who are um, working on the Spoken Web Project are doing research, like deep research into these questions that include things like, you know, how was radio becoming one of the primary ways that um, poetry was shared at a national level? Um, there was this, this radio series called uh, Anthology um, that... Uh, I am I am pulling up the host right now because it's gonna I feel like it was Robert Creeley <laughs> but somebody's gonna get somebody not you but somebody's gonna get really well, mad I love at this me if as, I get that as you look it up I just I just want to <clears throat> emphasize that the excitement that we feel that like you know it's we're jealous Americans who love radio and who love the arts and experimental sound have a lot of reasons to be jealous of what uh, of of Canadian sound culture then and especially it sounds like that there is um 
you know, I think you said institutional support for the arts. Um, my mind just goes straight mm-hmm. to a paycheck. You know, artists who are doing weird art uh, on behalf of Canadian culture can get paid for that. Uh, you know, uh, it's they don't get rich, but they can still um, eat soup and and live in a heated <laughs> apartment. Well, and what's most important about the way that cultural funding works here um, that I think is really significant is that the government funds these, you know, these various awards that go to both directly to artists, but also support things like publishers, right? There's like block grants that help keep small presses running. Um, And those grants are funded by the government, but they are not distributed by the government, um, which is to say the government takes an arm's length relationship to it. So it is juries of peers that decide what is funded and what is not. And so that means that it's like, here's some money for art and artists get to decide what art should be funded. So it doesn't ever become a sort of um, an extension of the the government's own, own agenda, which is really significant as well. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. Like radio was really a piece of this. And there's lots of um, experimental poets of the time who are really interested, like one in, in playing with sound and its affordances, but two also in playing with recorded sound itself. So the poets were also really interested in like, what happens if you record something and then play it back and then speak over it? You know, what can we actually do with this kind of newly available technology that lets us play with with sound and, and the nature of what we're creating? That's awesome. I love that. Like thinking about tape recorders as, you know, one of your instruments. And back to the the spoken web project. So in these literary recordings that you're talking about, are there radio recordings that are also part of the collection that's being collected? <laughs> so one of the big challenges around that is that most of the sort of major radio that, you know, literature was being shared through um, was CBC. our our national broadcaster and um, CBC archives are difficult to gain access to. Um, They belong to, you know, the CBC is like a government organization and it's their archives and they don't make them super easy to find for scholars. So that has been my colleague, Catherine McLeod does really interesting work on the, the, aforementioned anthology series and and in general on the role that CBC played in circulating poetry during this period. And she's always, you know, struggling with getting access to archives. And then, you know, and this, as you might imagine, is a big challenge with the Spoken Web podcast, permissions. That even if you can hear something really neat, getting permission to use it and to recirculate it gets, um, gets really tricky. But lucky for us, our team is full of very smart librarians and archivists. Wow. Well, so you're just, you're taking a step that I think a lot of podcast producers never even um, contemplate for their own mental health, you know, the ability to move forward with their project, which is um, the licensing for the material that they're using. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, particularly important with this kind of project for a variety of reasons, including that we're like funded by like the the project as a whole is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council in Canada. Speaking of funding, we also have generous national funding for research projects. And 
Um, you don't want to do semi-legal things when you're funded by a federal yeah. funding body. Um, but also, a lot of these archives, like these collections, right? I mentioned that a lot of the time they're not already in institutions. It's like, oh, this person just had them. And so a lot of the time, researchers are gaining access to these collections through personal relationships of trust that they are building with the individuals, right? This is the 60s and 70s. A lot of these people are are still living or it's, you know, their, their partner who we're gaining access to the collections through. So you, you're building relationships of trust. You want to ask permission. Yeah. You don't want to put things out there that people don't want to share. That, the, and, that relationship of trust just came up in the last episode we recorded about... Um, Ethics, yeah. ethics, and and recording protests and materials from protests, and what are the ethics well, of of you know both archiving that information and making it accessible, as well as the family members uh, sometimes having uh, feelings about the how this yeah. how this material was going to be shared, um, as well as uh, we're you know the the idea that sometimes uh, black communities would think that. Uh, uh, the archiving of their materials uh, would be weaponized against them in the future, especially if those materials were um, activist events and protests. So um, all of these I- issues, that was a, um, it's just echoes of, of last week that I'm bringing mm-hmm. up into the topic. I'm sorry, Jennifer, I interrupted as you were talking. Oh, well, well, so, so Hannah, you had alluded to the spoken web podcast. So maybe now's a good time just to talk a little bit about how, how the podcast aspect of this project is is working to bring to light things from the archives. Whew, yeah, thank goodness, because the podcast is the thing I'm an expert in, whereas the rest of the project, there, there are many other people who like, oh, good. you know, I was like, <laughs> if they ask me how an eight track works, I'm gonna have to <laughs> be like, oh, no, my internet broke up. Why is um, poetry good? Yeah. <laughs> not what I feel comfortable with. I have a PhD in Canadian literature. I'm ready to go with those answers. Um, So uh, I was brought into the project specifically to help them to develop a podcast. And the idea was, this is a project that is working with sound-based archives. And the general way that you write about sound as a scholar is like you transcribe it and then you describe it. So if you're working with like an old sound clip, you know, you'll like write down what it says and then you'll be like, and it has this quality and they pause in these ways, right? You have to, you have to turn sound into a written artifact in order to do scholarship about it. But podcasting gives us a space where we can do not only do sound-based scholarship about sound, but take things even further and like incorporate the interesting affordances of sound into how we're doing our scholarship so that as you're playing with the idea of like, you know, how are, for example, there's a great episode of the podcast called How We Are Listening Now. That is Jason Camelot and Catherine McLeod thinking about how our relationship to sound has changed during the pandemic. And because they are working with a sound-based medium in order to make this argument, they can, you know, incorporate audio out of Zoom calls to, like, actually embed that specific experience of sound. But they can also play with, like, 
um, fragmenting the recordings in order to produce something that affectively feels the way it does when you are trying to talk to somebody and your internet starts breaking up or when making, when describing the relationship between noise and signal to actually like bring the noise in the recording up to like, so you can hear what does it mean for a recording to be noisy? Um, so there's all of these possibilities for what you can do when you're talking about sound and using sound to do it. One thing, I have like a very simplistic example where when I was thinking about literary recordings and how it's different, you know, specifically about literary recordings, how it's different to hear versus read. Um, I'm taken back to my junior high school classroom where my teacher had a turntable and she would play Shakespeare for us. So mm. when we were studying Shakespeare, we would hear it being read. And and so I was wondering if that if that resonates with any of the work that's being done with this collection to you. I think it can. I mean, I think that there is a reason why the reading series is remains a popular way, way for people to engage with poetry. Um, I think poetry in particular, and you know, Shakespeare falls into this into this history, um, is brought to life through the act of being spoken. And we historically, we primarily read out loud to each other anyway. So a lot of older texts were always meant to be read aloud and are hard to understand without reading them aloud. I've, I've taught Paradise Lost a few times and Paradise Lost is incredibly difficult to read in your head because um, it's all about these like long sort of weirdly constructed sentences that have a beautiful rhythm to them out loud. Yeah. But when you're trying to hold them all in your head, just fall apart. Um, but there are lots of ways in which um, poetry, which which can feel, I think, difficult to access to a lot of readers. Um, it feels um, like it's something like only poets read it or only particular kinds of people like poetry is only for certain people. But when you see or hear a poem being read, you can get a much better sense of its meaning that I think opens up the possibility of enjoying poetry for a for a larger audience. And And you've talked a lot about you know, the whole spoken word collection sort of emerges from these readings that people were doing. So you're actually hearing the the author doing the reading, which is different than hearing an actor reading Shakespeare. Yeah, you're so hearing maybe the author's voice and you're hearing their little introductions and you're hearing them pause and take a sip of water and you're hearing the audience and you're hearing that weird awkward moment where people try to decide if they're supposed to applaud or not because it's never clear at a poetry reading if you're supposed to applaud so like on one level you get absolutely the way that this work is brought to life by the poet's own voice. And then on another level, you also get this amazing immersion into like the event, like the specificity of the location and the moment that also is, is just really exciting. I'm, you know, now I'm also just thinking about this moment that we had in the United States very recently where Amanda Gorman at the inauguration gave this yes. insanely incredible poem and yeah. And and how many occasions do we have like that in... She's going to be reading a poem at the beginning of the Super Bowl now. That's right. Like, so like, that. so poetry, you know, it's jumped. 
Amanda Gorman's poem was not the first time that a poem captured the American imagination when it was read at an inauguration, but I do think it's the first time a poet is going to be invited to open the Super Bowl. Which, yeah, I mean, (laughs) talk about America, United States of America. This is um, sort of a watershed moment, and she's this rock star and even has presidential aspirations herself. (laughs) So I would would love to hear your take on it since you're part of this spoken web project and also doing a podcast i'm sure that you've had conversations about this among your peers absolutely not no um no we haven't talked about it at all but i think that it is like a reminder um like there's a lot of things that makes me think about but one that i come back to time and again is um you know, there's a real politics to what poetry we canonize and then anthologize and then teach. And there is a tendency for us to collectively disregard occasional poetry. It's like poems that were written for a particular function or that were written to speak to a particular moment, right? We don't anthologize the like, the poems people wrote for political events. We anthologize the like, poems they wrote about urns that are also metaphors for something else um and so we lose because of the way that we we save some stuff and not other stuff we lose the sense that poetry has always been deeply political and often deeply occasional which is to say written for a particular purpose in a particular moment and that we often turn to poetry to to sort of mark and help understand the significance of moments. Um, And then we don't save that. And then people get the impression that poetry is only ever about like waterfalls or trees or like stuff that's like, I don't get why this is important. Like, why do I care about this dead guy thinking about walking in a forest when it's like, well, but probably that dead guy also wrote poems about like war, like, and the things he was living through and the things that, that felt urgent and timely but then you don't save that stuff and you lose this sense that like there is a reason you get a poet at an inauguration that as you're describing this and and talking about this idea of the canon it also makes me wonder about you know the entirety of the spoken web project and is it is it focused on certain types of authors and poets or yeah or I wanna, what is your definition of the canon I, for I this wanna, project i want to piggyback on that question and ask like is there anyone in the in the spoken web archive whose voice is like rings out larger than their written work oh yeah i mean those are both wonderful questions there are there are lots of people who for me i um what i love most about them is their voice like some people who I'm like your poetry is great but when I hear it I like get it um my favorite example of that is is Gwendolyn McEwen who is a poet who um she published a number of of collections but she was best known as a performer and she was this really she was like fascinated by Egyptian culture and so she wore her hair very very long straight dark hair parted in the middle and she always had very dark eyeliner and she was really really performative and um and she memorized all of her poetry Mm. so it was always a a performance rather than a reading and everybody says that seeing her perform was just just a completely arresting experience and and we don't have 
video, but we've got audio recordings where you can hear her voice. And that really like summons her uh, in this in this powerful way. And there's other, you know, there's other examples of, of people who um, like historically who we hear were incredible performers, but getting getting to actually listen to audio of, of poets own performances can can really bring them to life in that sense. Um, the other thing that I would that I would point to that is neat about the podcast is that so the podcast itself is is collaborative. Um, each episode is created by a different member of the team. And so it is a space where um, the people, it's like a huge group. There's like 40 people on this project. Oh, wow. At like 12 different institutions. It's a massive, it's a massive project. Um, and so people are doing really different kinds of research. And the podcast is a space where the rest of us can find out about other people's stuff. But it's also a space where people who are like new to podcasting can try their hand at making a podcast for the first time, um, where people who just have an interesting research story to tell can like go on there and, you know, try telling their right. their interesting research story. So the diversity of topics on the podcast is like really expansive, like the most recent or the second most recent episode um, is about um West African talking drums mm -hmm. and like the, the technology of talking drums and, and how they work as both an art form, uh, communication and a political tool. So it's, it's not necessarily always like 19, 1960s poets only, right? We're trying to use the space of the podcast in particular to expand our conversations about, about sound and how we talk about it. Right. And this is... And in part because as I think we talked about this the last time you were on the show, Hannah McGregor, but we've also talked with other academics who uh, love sound and who are sort of um, sometimes it seems like, uh, you know, they're building the boat as they uh, ride the boat down the river that, that like um, that, that there's a there's 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 a thousand years of academic work in the written word. And there's uh, it's this is like the first generation of academic work in sound. And yeah. it hasn't been established yet that you can be an academic and a and a radio producer, right? I mean, it's it's happening today, and so that's really exciting that your spoken web podcast with these with um, dozens and dozens of academics contributing sort of um, is is a part of that space. The other one I'm thinking of is uh, Sounding Out, the Sounding Out podcast um, with our guest um, so long ago that names. Well, and, and Sounding Out also, you know, the episodes of the Sounding Out podcast can take on a variety of styles with a variety of contributors. So it, it also seems to work in this in this collaborative way that you're talking about. I, yeah. Hannah, one of oh, the one of the the nice things just just thinking about about infrastructure, right? Like, how do you you know build the boat? Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges of this project was just off the get go, just figuring out like how are we going to make a podcast that's created by a team of 40 people in 12 different institutions? So how um, do you? <laughs> yeah, how we do it is that we have an absolutely incredible supervising producer, Stacey Copeland, who is a, um, a PhD candidate here at Simon Fraser University, who also has a background in radio production. And so she is the person who like, 
oversees the series um, sort of structurally and works with people to, you know, finalize the production of their episodes and just help, like, does that, that intermediary work of, like, some people come in fully ready to make an episode and other people come in, like, how to podcast. What's what, it, What's editing software? What is, yeah. exactly, right? And so part of what she does is, like, make up that difference, do the sort of one-on-one help that folks sometimes need. Um, and then just sort of, um, we're always like walking that line between we want consistency because podcasting is a serial medium and people want some level of consistency. So like I am the consistent host, we have a consistent theme song and we want the production quality, quality to be consistent. But within that consistency, we want to leave a lot of space for play so that people can do, you know, a more maybe conventional sort of, audio essay or audio documentary, but also can do like somebody's working right now on doing a like podcasting edited edition of a text. So they're going to like read a short story and then do like footnotes for it. But as sound, I have absolutely no idea how it's going to work, but I'm really excited to find out. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so so is it monthly? Is that right? It's a monthly. Yeah. So we do main episodes once a month. And then on the uh, on the opposing fortnights, um, Catherine McLeod, who I've mentioned a few times before, she does a series called um, Shortcuts, where she plays just a little piece of audio out of the archive, just with a short introduction. So it's just a way to get little tastes of, uh, of stuff that's already been digitized. Oh, yeah. Talk more about Shortcuts. What, what sorts of things... What sorts of audio has she uncovered? And- oh, all kinds of stuff. So so what she's doing with Shortcuts is um, uh, basically sort of curating out of the existing digitized audio. So um, she's like, you know, the audio clips, I think, are usually like three to five minutes. So quite little pieces um, that are themselves playing with like, like she's theorized the name shortcuts in terms of that like media history of cutting and splicing um, the way that audio can be sort of literally cut apart and put back together. Um, and, and what she does is, is listen through and just find stuff that is interesting to her and then do that kind of, that kind of, of contextualizing. Um, so a lot of the time for me, what I'm hearing on the shortcuts episodes are writers I've, like never heard of before and audio clips I have never heard. Um, what is the, the most recent one which came out? It was the mid January episode. Um, it's a recording of Muriel Rukeyser reading in Montreal on January 24th, 1969. As you might tell, be able to tell from my pronunciation, I had never heard of that person before, but she's finding just things that she's like, I was listening and I heard something neat here. So let's listen to this a, and hear this neat thing together. That's a really wonderful um, – it, it goes into your podcast feed and so it reminds listeners that you exist. And, you know, your ep- the episodes of your Spoken Web podcast are, you know, interview you know interviews with sound and voices talking. But then you have these shorter episodes that come in between those longer works that, uh, that are just pieces of – 
tape from the archive. It's a very, it's a very natural way to, to, to include other work in the feed. Um, the, our episode, uh, talking to the sounding out podcast producer, Jennifer Stover is her name. And that was episode number 132 back in March of 2018. So we're coming up on three years since that episode. Wow. That's amazing that it was that long ago. I think it was uh, really the first time we talked to an academic about sound. I know, which I've been wanting to do for a long time yeah. was now to that's incorporate more academics ha- and sound of, studies. Half of I mean, the at the risk of that. at the risk of overselling spoken web, I really think you should have Jason Camlata on as well. Sure. Because he he is a historian of audio recordings, amongst other things, and the things that he the way that he talks about recorded sound in particular is um is incredibly exciting and interesting that's delightful i was thinking about how when we had jennifer stover on um sounding out one of the is sounding out is a much older podcast it comes from a earlier time in in podcasting history like what like six or seven years ago i think and um they really um planted a flag on that not every podcast has to sound great because not Mm. every writer producer uh, not every voice has access to great equipment or you know the privilege to know how to use it and they don't want to exclude people just because um you know just because something doesn't sound right like, like uh, and they so, yeah. yeah they did sort of a manifesto about it um right because so many people complained about kind of this. a punk rock you know punk rock yeah idea of you know, why does, you know, we get comments that this sounds terrible and here's why access sometimes for us is more important, um, yeah. which, which yeah. is interesting. You know, there are a lot of different perspectives and it, and it's interesting that with, with your, with spoken web, Hannah, you're talking about how you like to have a consistency of sound, a certain level of consistency with the same mm-hmm. host and music and but, production yeah. value. It also sounds like yeah. someone is um, being compensated for their work to to maintain yes. that level of audio production, which is really it's part it's that's, part and parcel of uh, that's the where super audio comes significant from. part for me is that is that what we were were striving for was that kind of balance, right? That that we want it to sound as good as we can get it, and also we want to make this as open to as many participants as possible of really varying levels of experience and comfort with the medium, including there's lots of students involved in the project. So we want students to feel comfortable just like trying this out. And so, you know, the nice thing is that because it's a funded research project, we can pay somebody with expertise. And luckily for us, somebody who not only has production expertise, but Stacy is also a scholar who is also studying the history of radio. Um, she specifically studies the history of um, of lesbian radio and podcasting. Um, another, I'm just going to throw you a ton of guest recommendations. Sure. Stacey would what, also be great. It happens. I mean, you know, <laughs> oh. it's, it's just amazing because just what, what I'm thinking of and somebody, maybe there's an academic in the world who's thinking about this or wanting to, maybe it was me. Uh, there's just been a massive sea change and, you know, the pandemic has really opened that up to our ears that equipment now is just so um diverse and available for mm-hmm. talking into microphones that are recorded clearly by computers that work um things have really changed in the last uh, 5 years it's really incredible so yeah yeah and there's a lot more good sounds skills. 
there's different schools of thought around that. Like I, I come 100% out of this, this punk rock background too. Like podcasting is interesting to me because I think it has some similar culture to zines. And I think independent and DIY publishing has continuously this really radical potential to give us space to do things otherwise that are not necessarily responsive to the demands of the market and the way that market demands end up like exerting this really coercive, like, genre force right once something's been popular everything else after it has to sound like that thing and i don't want to make stuff that sounds like what everybody else is making because that's boring to me Mm -hmm. so that possibility of like we can still do diy stuff we can still do weird stuff we can still do amateur stuff i think is really exciting yeah yeah that's that's great you're speaking to that direct line from zines to blogs to podcasts that we've talked yes. about on the show before. And it's important to keep that in mind that that podcasts have existed, you know, prior to the corporate idea yeah. of pod- podcasting. And like the yes. hobby horse that I will ride off into the sunset every episode is like <laughs> podcasts should not exist only to, you know, hit the skyrocketing top of the charts and win, win, you know, uh, thousands of patreon like some podcasts need to exist that aren't going to be um hits and uh, producers more producers need permission to make more podcasts that sound different and are special and mm-hmm. aren't aren't for, for everybody it's like it's a really wonderful thing about the medium that you can make something that's only for a few people yeah and that might actually just before the sake of making it which is one of the the pleasures of the spoken web podcast for me as well is that um because there is this really strong um commitment to good pedagogy as part of the way that spoken web as a project was designed tell us what right? pedagogy so, means pedagogy is teaching it's the yeah. sort of theory theory of how we teach um and so thinking really about teaching sort of, is pedagogy hmm? right? thinking about teaching thinking about teaching yeah and then when you do it i guess it's just teaching (laughs) um but the sort of you know built into the dna of spoken web as a project is this idea that students participate as collaborators and are taken seriously as colleagues and researchers and thinkers and um so often in the university the way we treat student work is you create it for an audience of one which is your professor and then they give you a grade, and then you might as well shoot it into a black hole sometimes, for all the good it will do anybody after that. Sometimes your mom will listen to it, and sometimes your mom will not listen to it. That's yeah, crazy. that's a good that's a good point about all the undergraduate papers that we wrote, right? Yeah. Just millions and millions and millions that just gone forever. But when you give students the opportunity to like make something, to to create something that. Um, that they might share with other people, it like takes their work and their thinking more seriously, but also just gives them a chance to, um, to play with how they themselves are going to create their, you know, create and share their own knowledge. And so the podcast in that sense, you know, the spoken web podcast in particular, um, does really have this, this ethos of like, It is great when other people listen to these episodes and we are delighted when episodes circulate more widely, but sometimes it's enough just 
that somebody made them and that that experience was valuable. I think that's a good point. And and I'm curious, like on a on a broader level, when the episodes are being created, who is the assumed audience, even if it is very niche? Is there what what is the thought process as far as who is the audience for the spoken web podcast? Yeah, I mean, that's so that's one of the tricky things about a podcast that you decide to not prioritize consistency over, you know, the exciting possibilities of collaborative creation, because all of the sort of wisdom about building an audience is like, you've got to create episodes consistently with a particular audience in mind. And our audience, our, our episodes are pretty diverse. So mm. the primary audience, I think, is other folks who are interested in Canadian literature, um, literary history, sound history, um, sound studies, right? So students and scholars who work in, in these fields in general. And I think we're seeing a lot of like the wider scholarly community engaging with them. We're seeing the sort of wider community of um, poets engaging with this stuff. Um, we're seeing episodes being brought into classrooms and used as teaching material. Um, and so we're seeing it getting picked up in those kinds of communities. Um, I, I think we, with particular episodes, we see them getting picked up more widely, um, hmm. more, you know, by people who are, uh, who are sort of more, more generally interested in like a good story about Canadian history, right? Like we might tap into like that CBC listenership kind of demographic. Um, and it really depends episode to episode. I I like, I'm glad that you mentioned that it's being used in the classroom because we've talked to a lot of archivists on the show. And even with my work on the Radio Preservation Task Force, there's a lot of conversation about making archives, bringing archives to life, and also mm. making sure that people are using archives. You know, archivists want people to take advantage of the material and and that you know it makes it makes all the work even more feel even more valuable that that your work intending to these archives is reaching a larger audience so maybe talk a little more about that yeah i mean like i said librarians and archivists are part of the the larger spoken web team because it's a it's a project that is engaging with archives and so they're absolutely sort of fundamental and central to this work and so part of it absolutely is thinking about like, how do we mobilize what lives in archives? And that's a question we're thinking about all the time, right? There's this amazing wealth of material that is for all kinds of reasons, not necessarily finding the audiences who might love to know it's there. And we can we can talk about like the many, many barriers that exist between um academic institutions and a larger public or the communities we could be serving that come, you know, are as simple sometimes as like special collections libraries have big, scary, thick wooden doors because they need to be climate controlled. And those doors say so loudly, you're not allowed in here, hmm. even though actually probably you are probably like it's a public university. You absolutely can go into special collections and ask to see anything, but like, 
it's a scary institution. I don't know how to, I don't, like, there's rules. I'm not I know, and you, a pen. And you, yeah, you can't bring a pen in. I was just going to say that, which is terrifying. <laughs> there's all these rules. If I touch something wrong, am I going to be in trouble? I don't know. Do I have jam on my hands? I'm not sure. Like, it's just, you know, it's Very really Very intimidating. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, right, it's like, you know, just just even knowing that that stuff is there. And this is part of, again, where I think podcasting has this really interesting power because it is a storytelling medium. And a lot of the time to get people engaged in the interesting stuff that lives in archives, you need to tell them stories about it. You need to be like, here's what this is and here's why you might care. And framing it within that story that sort of you know, provides a sense of context and meaning can be a really powerful tool for mobilizing um, what's in archives that goes hand in hand with a project like digitization, right? Making things accessible is great, but you also have to tell people it's there somehow, even if it, even if it is accessible to them, you also have to like bring them to it. As, as you've been going through the whole process of leading this task force related to podcasting for the spoken web project, Hannah McGregor, what what have you learned? What has jumped out at you or surprised you along the way? What has been sort of the most surprising and delightful thing is the kinds of innovative and exciting audio that first-time podcast producers create. Um, it It is it never ceases to be a pleasure to me to work with students on audio. I'm, I'm teaching a podcasting course right now. Um, and we're just getting to the point where in week four, and we're just getting to the point where they're like giving us audio. And I'm, I was, I was talking with a friend the other day, I was like, why is it so much better than essays? I don't understand. Like, I love reading. Amazing. Yeah. Why is it so much more fun to engage with student audio work? And I think it is because it it's a new and different medium. And so it's like, it's a different part of your brain. It shakes you out of a lot of your sort of default thinking around like what schoolwork needs to be like and what you're allowed to do. It lets you be more artistic. It, it lets you feel like you're making something yeah. rather than just sort of like, you know, checking off the boxes on an assignment. And so there's the space for, for play and experimentation and unpredictability um, that emerges through the way that people who are who are brand new to the medium, you know, start to experiment with it, that is just so joyful and interesting and exciting. Yeah, I mean, you've just given us a description of why podcasts um, are, are good. Why, why in yes. 2021, we care about, you know, people talking in the microphones is there's just so much more uh, energy and diversity than there was uh, 20 years ago on the radio, even though it was all possible, but mm-hmm. something was something was bottled up and it, it came it came bursting out as soon as uh, it went to the web. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And well, and this and the Spoken Web series started in 2019. So in all those years, have you seen it change? Ha- has it are people um, picking up on what other producers have done? And has it has it gone to a different place than when it first started, do you think? You know, not actually. What the the best change over the so we're um we're in our second year now. Um 
And the biggest change between the first and second year is that in the first year, the sort of core team of the podcast task force had to make basically all the episodes <laughs> because we couldn't get anybody else to make them. Mm-hmm. We were like, come on, we like, we'll support you. Stacy's here. We can help you. We'll give you a, a free license for Hindenburg. Like, well, you know, we can figure this out. And people were just like, we don't know how. And academics hate looking silly. So we're out. We're not doing it. And so we used that first season really to like model. Like here's, you know, we're going to make a ton of different styles. And um, we're going to deliberately make episodes that are like lower barrier to access or like a little easier to produce um, sometimes. But some more complicated episodes so that you can like hear that like lots of different things are available so like one will be like this quite dense like sound documentary but another episode is just me interviewing Stacy about her work so you can hear like lots of different things are possible and the great triumph of season two is that a ton of new people signed up and so now we've got like all of these different episodes being made by all of these different people and they sound really different because they're they're different creators. And so that for us felt like a real achievement. Like we successfully convinced people and now they're making podcast episodes and what they're making is so cool. So that felt like a like a win. Right. But the theme, With that, but there's a theme, that, right? There's a even though the diversity of, of, of producers and creators is so diverse, um, <laughs> the 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 show is still about the um, the archives. There's a threat. The yeah, there is, there is a thread. The show, I mean, the show is circles around the archives and there will be more material to make episodes about the archives as more of the archives get digitized because these two pieces of the project are going hand in hand. Um, I mean, there's more than two pieces. There's like 20 task forces, I think. There's metadata task forces yeah. i guess another missions task i guess another forces, theme but, that i'm assuming is a part of the show is just the um the nature of sound as as the medium yes. to be explored yes exactly and the the intersection i think particularly of of literature and poetry and sound yeah so some of the episodes are specifically picking up this this archival audio and others like i said like the talking drums episode is taking this question of where does sound meet literature and taking it in a different direction. Yeah, so it sounds like the archives can be a jumping off point philosophically as well as technically. Yes, yes, absolutely. So it, it, it's really cool that you used, that you sort of modeled how you wanted the podcast to go and then and then people jumped in and, and really latched on to that idea is that would you offer that same advice if there were other people with archives who are hoping to bring their archives to life does this model would you recommend this model that you tried i mean i think if you're if you're trying to get lots of different folks to make episodes then yes i think so i think um modeling to people that there are different ways to do this kind of work is really effective um, I think the the biggest thing that I learned from setting up this project is we spent the whole first year putting the infrastructure in place before we put out a single episode. 
figuring out who will do what work, what will the editorial workflows look like, where will files live, where will the podcast live, how, what are the timelines, what is the intended audience, what are the tone, what are the genres people can use? Like there were so many infrastructural questions to to figure out because of the collaborative nature of the project. Like every time I've started a podcast, it's been like, it's four o'clock on a Thursday and I'm bored. Podcast o'clock, start a new project. Yeah. <laughs> you can start it in no time. But this one, because it was like this big collaborative thing, the infrastructure was super key. And it's not, it's a much less sexy conversation than like the radical possibilities of working in sound. But I am so glad we took the time to get a working infrastructure in place so that now the project can like wow. actual, can actually work. I'm going to tease that we'll talk more about that in detail because I have a lot of questions for, for the podcast um, edit of this episode uh, on Radio Survivor. We're speaking with Hannah McGregor, who is a part of the Spoken Web podcast and um, – and so many other things, so many other things to list off that you that, that you work on when we talk to you on Radio Survivor. Yes, many intersections between publishing and podcasting, which is fascinating. And, and this week is a perfect example of that. Um, I'm I'm curious if you could kind of tease some of the things coming up on the Spoken Web podcast. Are you able to hint at some of the topics or sounds or even some of your favorite sounds that you've heard things that might surprise people that are in the collection. Oh, what an interesting. Okay. So my very favorite audio archive that I have heard is um, a presentation that a student who works on this project did about uh, applause, the different kinds of poetry applause. And that was, she had gone through and like picked out little clips of people applauding um, and then like created this this typology of varieties of poetry applause, like the, the tentative applause, the reluctant applause, the spontaneous applause, as a way of like using just these little audio clips as a way to think through the sort of the way audiences relate to live poetry. Um, and so I, I <laughs> that is not an episode yet, but it is an episode that I would really profoundly love to like at some point draw into existence um i hope so yeah that sounds wonderful it's absolutely absolutely delightful i have thoughts but um yeah well and that and that makes me think of if you think about television productions or even radio productions they probably have these stock recordings of audience applause so i love Mm -hmm. that idea of doing an actual you know looking at the real applause and understanding what all the different flavors of that are. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And it's such an interesting, it really is one of those things that like you can only like, it's something unique that is made possible by recording the live event. Yeah. And sometimes that gets edited out, I would think too. And so a a lot of the time. Yeah. Or even just, um, shifted or altered by the engineer or the editor you know you turn up the volume of the applause you turn down which microphone captured that applause you know are are you hearing it from the stage from the back of the room from from a bird's eye view you know there's there's so many choices to be made 
um, you know, do you dampen the applause and laughter in the final recording or do you overemphasize it because you want to trick people into thinking everyone had such a good time? Like these are choices that that radio producers make, you know, or yeah, do you use fake fake applause and no one no one cared in real life but you're manufacturing enthusiasm for the work um, well which editing. is happening in the pandemic right you uh things like applause and audience members are being inserted into everything yeah. which is you nothing know, football like games sporting events yeah yeah, right. yeah. Um, and that that the number of of like like stand-up comedians now are doing these zoom events but everybody is on mute so they don't get applause or laughter like they don't get that yeah. that responsiveness, the, and so it is also that like like liveness has this energy to it, and so the recording of the live event carries these these audio traces of the really specific energy that comes from liveness. Yeah, the worst. This is very much now in podcast land. The worst thing in the pandemic, in my opinion, was when Saturday Night Live from from the home the the home version of Saturday Night Live attempted to bring a half dozen audience members into a Zoom call and their only job was to laugh at the um yeah that was at the jokes. That's super awkward and it was bad it's so bad it was bad sounding um one of my uh again I'm so ex- excited we're in podcast land because this is very um it's very what it is what it is I'm gonna say it. it's like I've been obsessed with um. The applause that you hear, especially after some kind of artistic event that is um, emotionally powerful and mm. and some of those emotions might be uh, associated with negative feelings like the power of, of a piece of art that makes you feel uncomfortable or grief or sadness. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is my opinion in this case, my weird artistic opinion, that the applause comes to sort of like – Get that away! Like we 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 felt some feelings that we don't need to feel anymore. Hooray! Ha ha! You know, it's a it breaks a tension. And I actually have been in rooms with art where I thought that tension didn't need to be broken. Mm-hmm. We should have all sat in silence and felt those feelings for for a little while longer than just applauding it away. Um, so that's that was my first thought. That I think is part of the the energy of applause at poetry readings right that i don't know how many poetry readings you've been to recently um but (laughs) but (laughs) applauding between poems is quite rare yeah so it's more it's more like the poem finishes and everybody is expected to sort of sit quietly with it Mm -hmm. which is delightful and so that yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. It's a really, silence, it's a really silence. different it, use of applause. I learned yeah. in school because of uh, my little unique privilege of having a, uh, a an orchestra and band education. That's when I learned in middle school that like there are rules about applauding uh, classical music that you don't mm-hmm. applaud until the conductor uh, lowers their hands. Like right. so, if their hands are up, you're not. The, the the song is not done. It's just a pause. And, and the rule is the audience doesn't applaud it yet, which um, mm-hmm. was new information. It was an education to me. Yeah, yeah I remember yeah. that. I'm, you, you all are making me think about Quaker meeting too, where in Quaker worship, everyone sits in silence yeah. until somebody is moved to speak and there's no leader. Um, and so it's exactly what you're talking about, Hannah, that people are sitting with sitting with things rather than... Mm-hmm outwardly expressing them 
and it's quite beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I, um, gosh, I miss being in the same room as people. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the big, (laughs) that's the big one. Uh, the big one of the pandemic. Um, it has affected all our lives and only the weird outlaws, rule breakers and, um, nasty people are getting are gathering together it's like all the yeah. all the well-behaved and caring people are staying separate um yeah it's so, something yeah. i'm experiencing really intensely because i'm teaching this class online and a fully on like it's a really small group and we meet every day yeah. um and so i have spent so much time with these people and i have never met any of them and that's you know that that dynamic existed pre-pandemic like you would form communities online and have collaborators you hadn't met in real life but there is something about like the co-regulation that happens in a classroom like the way that our that our energy coalesces to create a particular environment yeah that it's just like it's (laughs) you have to do a lot of work to create community online in a way that in person not that it isn't work in person, but that some of that is happening just like physically. Yeah. And I, I would, you know, I imagine yeah. based on hearing stories from my high school student who I live with and just also how I feel about all this is that like, um, I, I actually also spoke with a good friend of mine who's an elementary school teacher during the pandemic and, uh, was saying that only the very privileged, uh, children in her classroom were using their voices and it was it may you know the just zoom meetings are primarily um gonna privilege you know there's even the thing where it's like the person who's talking gets the little highlighted box um Mm -hmm. like it it's such a strange it it's a related to our interview today in a way that i haven't fully contemplated or or i can't finish the sentence but but like uh, the way that we use our voices in a in a in a in a distanced call or in a distanced learning environment is going to be totally different than the way uh, we are able to participate without our voices when we're in the room. Like a body language, body language. Well, is, and it and it, and it's dis and it's disembodied. Um, Eric and I have both talked about this because we both have students, you know, children who are. In, in their first year of high school, first year of high school, and at my daughter's school, they really struggle to get people to put their cameras on, and and they're trying to get the kids to use their cameras to help build that community, right? And also, and I would like, imagine for teachers, it feels very difficult to build community when you're looking at a bunch of, yeah, of blank sc- where you're not but seeing the kids. I don't know if I've said this on the podcast or just to my friends. Like, in what world would you have a bunch of high school students bring mirrors? into their classroom to stare at their own reflection. Well, of course, yeah. Which is exactly what a Zoom meeting or whatever other meetings they're on. Like you're not just presenting your face to your to your colleagues and your co-classmates you're you're, you're seeing your own yeah and that's that's just no it's complicated and i'm super sympathetic you know my daughter doesn't want to look at herself on camera no. but i also understand 
I also feel sad that that's like diminishing their community building. So. Oh gosh, yeah. yep. everything. And it's hard. It's got a lot of accessibility issues exactly. attached to it. You know, assuming that students are in a place where they can turn on their camera, assuming that they have yeah. Wi-Fi that works well enough that the camera will even work. Um, we had a really good conversation in my class last week about the importance of bodily autonomy. That because school is now in students' homes. And we're using this video technology. There's this really easy way in which school can become a surveillance technology, like that, that we are surveilling students and like fixating on, um, are you paying attention? Are you performing attention in a way that reads to me as attention on the screen? Are you right? And it can become so creepy so quickly. And so we were talking about how important it is that like, you have bodily autonomy. You can turn your camera off when you need to. You can get up and walk away when you need to. You can stand up whenever you like, go get a glass of water, go to the bathroom. Like this yeah. is not because we have to actively work against the tendency of these technologies to become creepy ways of surveilling people. Exactly. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of this horror dream that I had once like my boss was in my kitchen in my dream. You know, this was like a long time ago when she never, she never would have been in my house. But but now your boss is invited now, into your kitchen every yeah, day. Yeah, now your boss is in your bedroom or your kitchen. Yeah. And yeah. so, what does that mean? I hadn't really thought about it in that surveillance manner before, and that's a great way of describing it, Hannah. That well, and I don't know if you've been following the rise of um, video surveillance technology um, to like prevent student cheating has been a massive thing over the past year. So there's these, uh, there's a couple of big corporations um, that are selling this technology to universities where when students are taking exams at home, um, basically this technology like takes over their cameras and surveils them through it and then analyzes the video and uses secret corporate algorithms to determine whether students are cheating or not. Mm. Um, and it is like the, the privacy issues are massive, right? These corporations are like saving this information. They're saving this video. They're gathering data about students that students shouldn't have to consent to give away. But also we know that like corporate algorithms, these kinds of algorithms are like wildly racist and ableist. So they're also like, and multiple universities are signing like many year contracts with these companies and consenting to force students to not only turn their cameras on, but let themselves be recorded and have those recordings saved by these corporations. Another it podcast, another insidious. podcast. Let's, let's get back to, to, to radio survivor for, uh, I, I, I started it, but, um, let's, I want to, this is about sound. It's not at yeah, all. Wow. Um, it's okay. Well, I mean, well, every, it is. everything I mean, is everything. We're, we're talking about audiovisual. Hannah, yeah. Um, tell us about. Okay, remind me of how this project is different from the very recent episode where we just had you on. So, because okay. I didn't so want to, the- I didn't want to make a fool of myself. But here's this is what I was thinking while we're talking. Is is spoken web podcast um, a part of the idea of the project? Is is it a part of the academic work of the people that are contributing to it or is it an independent so it is a part of this is a part of the work that you're doing to um to include uh sound as a part of 
uh, the academy you know it's because 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 writing has been privileged over over sound yeah yeah it's a different i mean it's it's part of that larger umbrella of of the work that I am doing to try to get sound taken seriously as a form of, of scholarly communication. It's not. So the, the other big umbrella project is the Amplify podcast network and spoken web is not in the Amplify podcast network um, primarily because it's not being peer reviewed yet. Right. So that has been an interesting conversation we've had at spoken web to be like, we don't, want to peer review it in advance we want to just have this sort of freedom to make lots of different kinds of episodes but if we did want to think about peer reviewing it what would that look like and we've been sort of dancing around this idea of so a very common form in scholarly publishing is like the edited essay collection so like a thematic collection with essays by many different contributors and we were thinking that we could do like an audio edited collection of the spoken web podcast where we select a number of episodes the ones that we think are sort of the most the most interesting or exciting or make the most unique research contribution and then we put those episodes we treat those as like the first draft and then we put them through peer review and then the creators of those episodes revise them and then those those revised peer reviewed versions become part of this like audio anthology. So we're sort of playing with different ways that we might also use spoken web as a way to to have these conversations as well. That's a great idea. And I love how that connects with publishing. It's all, it's also meta. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's it. And uh, this is my ignorance of how um, the Academy works. That's what you call it, right? How, how it works when people (laughs) who are, who are doctors, um, do you need permission to to publish something in this in this universe that I don't live in? Is that how it works? Yeah. So yeah. Are, um, did you get permission to create your scholarly podcasts as opposed to Spoken Web, which is yours? And yeah, yes, that's the um, that's the key. So uh, the Amplify Podcast Network and my podcast that's that's on it, Secret Feminist Agenda, is published by Wilfrid Laurier University Press. And so the the sort of whole premise of that project is that we're collaborating with a press right? Um, because university presses and academic journals have the infrastructure to peer review scholarship. And that's what makes a piece of published, like something published scholarly. I mean, this is an oversimplification, but generally speaking, scholarly publishing, what distinguishes it is that it's been through a peer review process. And uh, again, uh, it's so funny that I just don't know this stuff uh, at this part of my life. Um, peer review means that it, it that 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 other people who are also experts uh, look at it before it gets published and and sort of um, what 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 happens? What is peer review? Peer review means that other people who are experts in that field have looked at that thing and agreed that it is um, valid, valuable, accurate research. Um, For the most part, traditional peer review happens prior to publication. So, um, you know, the the workflow would be something like I write a journal article, I submit it to the journal, the editor strips all identifying details from it and sends it out to two to three experts in my field who read it having no idea who I am. Um, They write reports 
advising whether it needs to be revised, rejected, or accepted as is. Almost all the time, it's revise and resubmit. That's almost always what you get. Mm -hmm. You edit it in light of the reports. You send it back. It goes back to the peer reviewers. They say, yes, okay, this is ready to go. Or no, you did a bad job. No publication for you. And then based on that, the journal publishes or doesn't publish it. And that's what we um, talked about the last time you were on is your peer review podcast. Right. But we didn't and, get into yeah. the weeds about well, and, about. And the, I'll let you finish that, but then I want to share a fun fact. Um, what, I, what I will say is that um, ex- we, lots of folks are experimenting with after-the-fact peer review. So are there kinds of projects that it doesn't necessarily make sense to peer review them before they go up? Um, but that at some point you want experts to look at them and say whether or not they contribute scholarly value. So that's what we did with Secret Feminist Agenda because it was being produced too rapidly for peer review to happen before the fact. And so we did after the fact evaluative peer review. Um, And there's another really neat example of this that I think might be interesting to your listeners, which is this journal called Reviews in DH. DH stands for Digital Humanities. And it's a journal that publishes open peer reviews of digital projects. So it sort of has flipped the whole thing on its head. So it's these people who have like built interesting digital projects and that includes podcasts. I just peer reviewed a podcast for them. And that thing like was created and like built and, and exists. And now they want sort of the stamp of peer review. And so they'll submit to the journal and say, we have this project, will you peer review it? And then the journal finds a peer reviewer and then the journal publishes the peer review. And so then you, as the creator of that project, can point at the published peer review to say, look, here's the evidence that this is scholarly. Well, and I like that that's a conversation too. It That feels, you know, you hear the stories about the anonymous peer reviewers and and some people might feel kind of prickly about it when their work is critiqued in this anonymous manner. So I like the oh, openness of that. An anonymous peer review can be vicious. People say really mean stuff to you. Yeah. And gosh, that would seem to me like you would definitely want your peer review um, work to be done like right after lunch, you know, not not before lunch when they're grumpy. Exactly. Oh. But that's never what's happening. It's happening at 10 p.m. when they are too exhausted to do anything else and are like, oh, I agreed to peer review this journal article. Fine. I wish I could go to bed, but I guess I'll read it. Ugh. Wow. Always. That's always when peer review happens. So I wanted to share a fun fact that Mm. I probably would not be here talking to both of you were it not for peer review. Oh. What? Why? How? So I wrote... I submitted an article to an academic publication. I I had already dropped out of a PhD program at this point, but I just, I happened to see some call for papers that reminded me of a project that I did in grad school. So I dusted off this project and submitted it to a journal, my first, first time submitting to a journal. And it was something about radio, about college radio. And it was, it was sent back with, Wait, wait, well, actually, something. Something. What was it? A about? journal article about college radio. Do you not want to say or do you? And so this is my origin story. Okay. And so the the reviewers got back to me and it was accepted with um, with pretty minimal 
pretty minimal comments. I guess I was lucky. But what they wanted was for me to situate it in, they wanted me to situate my work within a scholarship around college radio. (laughs) And so I did, so I went out and did a bunch of, you know, literature. Basically just need a literature review of college Mm -hmm. radio. So I went searching for right. what scholars had written about college radio, and I read a bunch of, well, I read some dissertations and theses and and found out that there wasn't very much, but also found that there were some interesting things. And so I, I inserted that into this revision of the article, but I also found, well, two things. You know, not enough had been written about college radio and academia, but also there were interesting things that were worth sharing. And so I started blogging about college radio because of all of that. Mm -hmm. And then that eventually led me to connecting with Paul Reismandel, one of the co-founders of Radio Survivor. So that is my origin story. If it weren't for peer review, I wouldn't have really dug in further into college radio scholarship. Right. And found out that there wasn't enough, right? Isn't that the yeah. that part of the story? There wasn't that, enough. That well, you a, had to there, take on them, that you had to carry this forward. There wasn't enough. And also that there was interesting stuff that should be shared too. So mm-hmm. what was there and, was worth sharing with people. And I love that you then went to blogging because there again is that connection between like, okay, here's this research gap, but I actually want to have a conversation with the community. And so I'm going to make this public. And then when you shared it via a blog, that meant you started like building community and connections, right. which I bet you wouldn't have done if you just published that article what was, and not done anything else. Well, the yeah, the article launched the blog. 2008. And so, so, so that the academic article, you know, is paywalled and not very accessible. Um, yeah. And you're right. And then, I was able to start doing public scholarship and then became an expert. And Mm -hmm. so I wasn't necessarily an expert when I wrote this, you know, my first piece of writing about radio culture. I was not an expert. But but then I started, then I just became a college radio researcher after that. (laughs) So, you know, there's some benefit to the peer review. <laughs> there can be. There can be. I think I think um what peer review is an example of is just one form of engaged educated critique. And I think all of us no matter what we are working on or creating would love people to engage with it closely and give us ideas for how to make it better. Like that's wonderful and you know we People like, for example, in, in, in book publishing, people are always um, bemoaning the fact that like most book review platforms have disappeared. And so we lack like a really sort of robust platform for like critique and engagement with books that are getting published. Like that's like we all just want people to like n- notice the things we're making and care about. Right. them. And I would add like engage with the work without being like a a thumbs up or thumbs down critic, mm. like engage with the ideas in good faith and, and, you know, talk and about that's why, them. Right? And that's why people create art and do work is, is hopefully that people will find meaning in it and engage with it. So, yep. you know, it's exciting when your work is cited by somebody or, you know, somebody it sparks something or a student is, yeah. uh, is sparked by something that you talk about in class. I mean, to me, that's been, those are the elements of, of scholarship and academia that I love. And that's why I like being kind of 
dipping my toe in the way I do, <laughs> because all of that is very pleasurable to me. Hannah, yeah. did you, can you, uh, Spoken Web is so huge and ambitious, and I don't mm. think we really, can you talk it one more time about, like, um, <laughs> like, like the, the structure of it, and then also, like, is this, where did, uh, 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 who is supporting the people that work on this project? How does this project even exist? Because, yeah. um, like, you know, Radio Survivor, like, if I could just, like, close my eyes and have a magic wish about Radio Survivor, I'd love to have 60 people helping produce it who all, you know, love radio. And But that's uh, – we don't we – have, we have three. How did you <laughs> yeah. get so many people involved? Yeah, so so the project as a whole is um it's this infrastructure that's referred to as a as a Shirk partnership grant. So Shirk is the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council um which funds social sciences and humanities research in Canada and the partnership grant is the largest form of grant they do. Um they're really big multi-year grants. They often last 7 years. Um and are in, you know, the, the multiple millions of dollars, um, because the idea is that they build the capacity for research partnerships between multiple institutions. And so the idea here is like, it can be really hard to collaborate in a sustained way with other people at other institutions, but who might be doing work that's really similar or really sort of vibes with what you're doing. So, so this grant is basically here to let us collectively make the infrastructure to build big collaborations like this. Um, and so, you know, as a whole, it's a project that has like literary scholars, librarians and archivists, sound historians, poets, linguists, programmers, musicians, activists, like just tons of different kinds of folks involved Um to try to gather the like many different kinds of expertise um, that might sort of come into this project of like archiving the history of literary sound. Um, so it is, it's a big ambitious project. And um, I, you know, as the, as the, the person who heads up the podcast task force, I have this little corner of it. Um, but excitingly for me, my little corner gives me like a ton of exposure to the really cool things other people are doing because yeah. my little corner is where people tell stories about what they're creating. So I just get to be over here, like learning about all of the, the different pieces of this project. Well, in a way it's kind of like a PR arm too, if you think about it, <laughs> like you're doing the publicity for, for the rest of the work. So I would think that everybody would be excited about the podcast and want to participate in it, want to get their work on the podcast was there a yeah, the, was there an the, organized oh i'm sorry you please answer oh, i was first. just gonna say i was gonna say in uh in um in canadian academia at least uh instead of calling it pr we call it knowledge mobilization cool oh um, <laughs> very not corporate we um so we're talking my hus- about my husband works in pr so i'm gonna have yeah, to tell him that we all that work in pr he's mobilizing like knowledge Oh, don't knowledge. don't actually don't tell him that okay let's keep it a secret <laughs> what about idea people. activation i'm an idea let's, activator let's let them sit on the buzzwords that already that they already use let, all right i'll, let, I'll, I'll keep let it amongst canada's ourselves. academic institutions keep their buzzwords 
um, much more pure, <laughs> much more pure. That's right. Yeah, um, I will. I'm in so, it. Mum's the word. What was so exciting? He does about, listen to the podcast, though. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like mom's the word, except we're recording this. I know, and, and he will be listening to this while he's making dinner this week. Um, <laughs> Spoken Web is based on all these recordings of poetry readings. Was this also like a, a organized effort of the government to make sure that there were sound engineers with good equipment at the events? Or like, why? <laughs> you know, I, was, I didn't want to ask that during the radio show, but it seems so. It's so unique for there to be so many recordings, right? Yeah, I mean, that, no, we don't have no, it's that. Quite, right? It's quite the opposite. I mean, for one thing, um, uh, shirk like like the many other forms of of cultural funding in Canada are never like it's funded by the government, but the decisions are never made by the government. Um, so it's you know academics choose what projects are going to be funded, just like writers choose what writers are going to get funded, um, but the archives that we're actually working with are, I mean, some of them are, are, are quasi institutional, which is to say like, maybe it was a poetry reading, the Sir, the Sir, sorry, the Sir George Williams collection, the one I mentioned that was sort of the, the founding core of this project was a reading series at Concordia. And so because it was being organized at a university, you know, they were recording it. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it was like there was an institutional setting that motivated people to record it. But a lot of the time it was just like, you know, amateur audio recordings mm. or it was a thing that was becoming popular in the community or it was an early version of like, we know some people we wish could be here can't be here. So we're going to record it and then send them a cassette tape so they can hear it. You know, like a lot of this. Um, a lot of these recordings were were energized by the communities that were actually creating the readings in the first place. Because yeah, I'm wondering yeah, I like, if I'm wondering I like how if... you were describing bootlegs earlier, and it it makes mm-hmm. sense to me that some of these events could be like music events where yeah. there's at least one person there who feels compelled to record the event. Well, I'm I'm thinking about what little I do know about 1960s poetry. And like the, you know, like Patti Smith comes to mind, like here's someone who who was uh, a rock star in poetry in the United States around the same time period. And how many of Patti Smith's poetry readings were were audio recorded with the same, um, you know, with the same thoroughness as what you were talking about in Canada? Is there a difference or is it just my not knowing the answer? Um, you know, we know that th- there is there's a recording of Howell. That's very famous. So I know some things mm-hmm. about poetry. I mean, I'm just thinking about fan culture and that there are there are folks who are going to go out and record every poetry reading by their favorite poet. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with the with the Penn Sound Archive? Nope. There's no. a, so if you're if you're looking for American examples, um, the Penn Sound Archive, which is at the University of Pennsylvania, um, kind of like. Like, you know, it predates Spoken Web by by decades, and it kind of pioneered the idea of, like, creating audio archives of um, literary recordings. And so, like, you know, a lot of the people I've been talking about, because they're Canadian, you might be less familiar with them. But if you go to the Penn Sound Archives, you're going to find a ton of folks who you who you know about like it's, it you know, it's full of like Gertrude Stein and William Carlos Williams. Right. Um, that makes sense. And people have been recording poetry as long as 
we could record things. Another thing I was thinking about during our show is just how um, I didn't find out until recently, until after my love of radio was developed in my adulthood, that a lot of American authors are famous not for their writings but for their spoken performances of their Mm -hmm. writing. And then 100 years later, all we have left is their books, but that these people really made their living with their voices and – I was thinking about like David Sedaris has always had both. He's always had his books and his voice and you really can't separate the two. Like we, we didn't read David Sedaris's work until after we heard his voice on the radio mostly. And I've seen David Sedaris read live and it's so obvious that like that's sort of the venue for the writing. Even, even his diaries, you know, are better when you hear his voice reading them. Um, You know who's another great example of somebody who's like absolutely this period, Montreal in the 60s, and is like probably more famous for his voice than anything else? Leonard Cohen. Right. Right? Who was a poet first and then a songwriter and who part of what made him an icon is this like like distinctive stentorian voice um, that it's absolutely – you know, the fact that that voice was something that could be heard in a more widespread way because of radio is direct, directly linked to his his celebrity. Neat. I was also thinking about, um, I learned something should about... We, should we let Hannah go, Eric? Oh, of course. <laughs> I'm I just, feeling... Oh, is it time, just, Hannah? My, Sorry. It's just, I mean, it has been two hours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just feeling, you know... Uh, My last comment is that I learned uh, many years ago after trying to read James Joyce and failing that if you read James Joyce out loud with an Irish accent, especially his extremely challenging books, the ones that are so surreal, um, Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, Wake. that if you read them out loud in an Irish accent, there's actually a lot more information that makes sense. And communally. Right? right. A lot right. of this work was not re- it was not read written to be read alone and silently. It was written to be shared communally and out loud. And there and there's some words probably in Irish too, but there's some words that are pronounced the same in English. Maybe a word that's spelled a few different ways, but it sounds the same in English, but if you're speaking with a British accent those words sound different, like Mary. <laughs> and so there are, the, yes. there are these sort of cultural regional differences too, where you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't capture that. You wouldn't understand that when you were looking at the text, but if you were mm-hmm. hearing it, it sounds different. A hundred percent. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. And all we, stuff. we didn't talk about Twin Peaks, so <gasps> I don't know if oh, we, no. <laughs> we, we teased it, but we did not deliver on that's the tease, true. So I apologies took up so much. for that. I, I was in such a good mood that I used my privilege to ask too many questions and didn't let Jennifer <laughs> tell Hannah about uh, That's okay. New, well, I'll, I'll, take, new I'll take two minutes. I was invited to be part of a Twin Peaks rewatch podcast. And so Ooh. we haven't released any yet, but we're about to record our fifth episode. And I have to say <laughs> I'm getting more excited with each episode. That's great. Like I was a little bit reluctant at first or because it's four hosts. And I was a little okay. bit worried about how that was going to pan out. And I'm the only woman also. But it's such a layered, that show has so many layers that 
it's just becoming more and more interesting with each episode. And it's a lot of fun to talk about TV and film because normally when I'm doing podcasts and radio shows, I'm talking about other things. Yeah. Are you, um, is it the kind of podcast that you can like listen to the first time you are watching Twin Peaks or is it only for people who already know? Yeah, we had a lot of discussions about this because the two, two of the guys have watched it 10 bazillion times, Mm -hmm. know everything about it. Um, I I watched the first two seasons when they came out a long long time ago, but I have not seen the new Showtime series, and and I'm hazier I'm hazier about the details. The greatest work of art of the 21st century. Yeah, so but I'm hazier about you know plot points, etc. Since it's been a while, so so we decided that we're going to keep it focused on a singular episode at a time and keep it spoiler free. Which I appreciate since I don't really remember how things are going. And so so the two people that know everything, sometimes they're having to like bite their tongue as as me and this other <laughs> person who's kind of Tension. rewatching it anew. Um we're, you know, making our naive comments and they're like, Oh my god, there's so much foreshadowing and um but I think it's cool because I, I like to think about the audience and I like the idea that this could be something that a brand new watcher could listen to this and not have things spoiled. Well, that I've, I have never seen Twin Peaks and, um, huh. yeah, yeah. Just, oh. not, just not part of, just not part of my cultural background and, huh. um, rewatch podcasts will often be the thing that triggers me to go watch a series because I love following along with them so much. Very cool. Well, I'm going to keep you, I will keep you posted if you have any interest in watching. I mean, I remember vividly watching the first episode of Twin Peaks, you know, when it debuted in my apartment (laughs) in the dark and just being blown away. So here's Mike. So Twin Peaks came out when I was in middle school. Amazing. And one of the... (laughs) calling my my friend a woman because she is a woman but one of the one of the girls that i really admired that i'd known since elementary school um couldn't get enough of it and now uh, her name is jessica hoffman you might maybe maybe she's famous in feminist circles nowadays i don't know um she writes she's a writer um she had a magazine 20 years ago that i would that i bought copies of uh, and i don't know what it is but but jessica's fan enthusiasm in middle school for Twin Peaks converted me into a viewer when it um, was rerun in the summer because that's how TV show worked uh, in in Gen X land and uh, I like I developed an appreciation for the show that was like hilariously gendered for my time in middle school that like I was the only boy huh. you know it was like a thing where like boys this is not a boy show. This is this is the show that girls like, and it was like, and I was like, no, oh my God, I like so this much show. boy in that show. I know, right? But <laughs> that's the thing about that show too is that, I mean, gender is a huge part of that show. Huge. I mean, as all shows are, but like, there's you're like, not selling me on it with there's so much boy. Oh. That's not. Well, no, I mean, gender is interesting, and in fact, the episode that we're about to talk about, we're going recording an episode tomorrow is. There's so much gender politics, and it's interesting. Um, 
yeah, there are strong female characters and strong male characters. I mean, it's, it's all the stuff that you would expect, yeah, Hannah. It, like, but it's also like you know, it's a it's a surrealist satire of fifties, you know, teeny bopper culture digested through a nineties TV show that was so before its time that it had terrible ratings, but it was a work of genius. That that's why the the Showtime well, it's sort of it's a gothic soap. Yeah, the Showtime um, show. Is the greatest that, work. Like it's a real category, a gothic. Soap. Yeah, it's it great. Is a gothic soap. The, the Showtime show is my is my favorite piece of art that's ever existed because it really, you know, David Lynch is a filmmaker who maybe is more responsible for like TV becoming a mature medium than anyone else, and then he had the opportunity to take that, you know, and then, and then TV got so good that it was that you know Twin Peaks is Twin Peaks. It's very influential and but influential also, like, on teen say, like, TV. It's like weirdly, I'm a big teen TV person, like, so mm, I'm like, right. I'm interested in what um, what influenced Twin Peaks, and then what t- Twin Peaks has also influenced. So I, I watch Riverdale, and Riverdale wow. has so much wow. Twin Peaks in it. But what I was going to say yeah. is that like Twin Peaks, when it was on, was so mind blowingly highbrow, and then rewatching it after you know seeing the rest of culture, it's a pretty cheesy piece of television like you start to wonder i do like oh wait did they know that they were being this arch and ludicrous or is it i mean i i'm just think like in the world of netflix it doesn't read the same and during the first i don't know if you'd like it watching it for the first time but the way we felt about it in the 90s when there was like um when nothing was good on television <laughs> like this was mind-blowing I, no, I think it. I think it totally stands up, and and it makes me want to. I mean, already I'm rewatching a bunch of David Lynch movies because of watching Twin Peaks again. Because but, oh my god, like there's all sorry. sorts of intertextuality between other movies he's I made read, and stuff on Twin Peaks. I read the book that came out after season one. That was Laura Palmer's diary. That was written by David Lynch's daughter. Right. Yeah. And I have that, that for me as a 13-year-old boy or a 14-year-old boy was the most mind-blowing. That was the first time I'd read, you know, uh, literature by a woman about being a teenage girl. Like, it was, I mean, and that that piece of work is not a part of the canon, I don't think. I don't think everyone who watches Twin Peaks on Netflix goes out and reads Laura Palmer's diary but that's I'm going for, to reread it. It was a big deal for Eric Klein. That's interesting. The, the feminist middle school kid, you know, learning, <laughs> well, reading well, that. Well, once, I mean, I think once once this podcast is released, um, I might have to do an after, we might have to do an after show with the three of us. Oh my about, God. And then Jennifer, there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a cassette, <laughs> there's a cassette tape that I still have that's, uh, that's a piece of audio where the beginning of the cassette tape is all of the um, FBI tapes, uh, Dale, Dale Cooper, Dale Cooper's FBI tapes. So it's it's a piece of sound art that goes with the show. Is why I'm enthusiastically mentioning oh, it. Yeah, and it starts off with just the tapes oh. that are excerpted from the show because he talks into a a little mini tape recorder, and that's a part of the of the conceit of the show is that he's always giving his notes out loud. So now you can see the main character talking out loud his thoughts into a tape recorder but you as a fan of the show in the 90s could buy the tape and then that tape had additional material that was not available within the world of the tv show so there was this sound component 
this sound is component. Like early transmedia publishing. That's really cool. Yeah. And I forgot all about all of this stuff. So yeah. I'm glad I'm glad I got to yeah. take the privilege of telling you about it here in one I have on my well, stopwatch well, Hannah that McGregor, we've been talking I know for an hour and forty minutes. But I, I guess know. Hannah, it's been Hannah longer. McGregor is a famous Harry Potter podcaster, so I I hope that I hope that this Twin Peaks podcast, I hope that it will measure up to the level of critique that that you were able to provide in in your podcast <laughs> that's something to aspire to i can't wait to hear it <laughs> thank you so much for joining us for the radio show and for this very extended afternoon chat for us here on oh, a friday pandemic afternoon. podcasting my friends pandemic podcasting i've been taking advantage of every voice and every ear I should probably have more Zoom meetings with my friends before we probably, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. That concludes the podcast episode of Radio Survivor today. Thank you so much for bearing with us. Uh, I had a delightful two-hour podcast. I hope I hope you found uh, something something of value in your time that you spent with us today. You can tell me about it if you like. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Of course, you listen to this episode as a podcast, but have you subscribed? Uh, always for free to receive this, uh, this, this nutritious and delicious uh, part of a balanced media breakfast uh, wherever you get your time-shifted radio. Jennifer Waits was the producer of today's episode. I thank her so much for her hard work. Oh, I should mention, Hannah McGregor is an assistant professor of publishing at Simon Fraser University at Vancouver, British Columbia, where her research focuses on podcasting as a scholarly communication, systemic barriers to access in the Canadian publishing industry, and magazines at a, as a middlebrow media. She's the co-editor of Which Please? Since 2015, a feminist podcast on the Harry Potter world. And is the creator of the podcast Secret Feminist Agenda, which is currently undergoing an experimental peer review process. And we discussed that uh, that that uh, slice of Hannah McGregor's uh, work life in a very recent previous episode of Radio Survivor. Which, if you are uh, continuing to listen to the sound of my voice, you obviously enjoyed Hannah McGregor's uh, contributions to Radio Survivor. Definitely check out that episode if you haven't already. Uh, links in the show notes to today's episode. Well, the, this work here at Radio Survivor is listener and reader supported. To find out more about what we do and how to help, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support where we have Patreon where – uh, once a year or so, we put in a little extra love to our Patreon supporters, sometimes more often than that. Uh, as a listener-supported work that, uh, you know, uh, the producers of Radio Survivor, we put in, we, we give everything we got to the radio show and podcast. And so often we, we leave it all, we leave it all on the table. It is not often that we paywall anything, which is the way that... Uh, patreon is structured you know you give you give a dollar or you give five dollars to an artist or a content creator that you love or uh, value and then they give you special secret patreon only content and uh, that works really well for a lot of people uh in the creative uh, community i know that youtube uh people on youtube really put that to work um providing their audience a special 
stream of uh, privileged content that's only for those Patreon supporters. Radio Survivor, uh, the producers of Radio Survivor have really just focused on making sure that everything that we do for our listeners goes into the stuff that's available to the listeners, uh, whether or not they pay for it or not. But uh, sometimes we do, in fact, put in an extra bit of effort for our Patreon supporters and actually are really – it is another avenue of communication. You know, that's uh, why it was built uh, (laughs) to sort of uh, strengthen the bonds between, between producer and audience. So it's always there is what I'm saying. Check it out, radiosurvivor.com slash support. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening to the sound of my voice. Oh, I should mention that, you know, I name dropped a old friend who is weirdly responsible for my uh, being a gigantic nerd about Twin Peaks. And after the after the show, I made sure to Google uh, my friend from you know, uh, uh, 30 years ago. Uh, her name is Jessica Hoffman and she in fact does have a new book, uh, feminisms in motion out from AK press. Uh, I'll make sure that Jennifer uh, or myself will put a link to that in the show notes for what it's worth. Since I, um, weirdly name dropped Jessica at the conclusion of today's podcast. Um, because, uh, she's the reason I got into twin beaks in 1990. Well, On that note, on that very personal note, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Uh, Did I mention that this was also a radio show? We did an hour-long edit of the radio show, so you've you've tuned into the privileged bonus round of content. We'll be back next week. Uh, We're actually going to – we are going to revisit a guest and a story that we began uh, one year ago, which um, as you're probably aware – uh, we are now all collectively entering the one-year anniversary of the pandemic changing our lives in the United States of America, especially, but around the world. Uh, Radio Survivor last year in the month, especially of February, I mean the month of March, uh, we did a, five episodes in a row talking to leaders at different community radio stations, college radio stations, uh, listener-sponsored stations, uh, talking to those leaders about how they were um, handling the beginning of the pandemic and then we uh it's come up since then but really we're gonna go back to some of those guests in a handful of shows uh coming up in in the following weeks where we're gonna uh, ask them one how how was your year (laughs) how was your pandemic year of community radio and two uh the topic that i'm most interested in is um how do you keep the doors open metaphorically, when they're literally closed? Um, how do you include new volunteers? How do you make sure that uh, the the people who have the, the least amount of privilege still have the most amount of access to your community stations? Um, because uh, the pandemic, as we know, has really amplified these disparities when it comes to digital, the digital divide, and, as well as... Um, as well as so much else. And so we'll be talking with Nathan Moore, who helps run a college radio station in Virginia for the first round. And then hopefully, or and then I shouldn't say hopefully, it's it's booked. We'll be talking to Becky Myers, who runs a radio station in Alaska. That's a unique hybrid community radio station and public radio station. They carry NPR content as well as uh, doing you know community content and as well as being a very unique station situated in Sitka, Alaska. Um, So I'm looking forward to those conversations. Uh, Those will be the forthcoming episodes uh, 
And that was a preview of that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening. See you next week.